your word to study and to know. Father, I'm just reminded this week as we've just exhorted ourselves, Lord, that the world just desires to rob people of truth. Young people, older people. Satan loves to deceive and distort. So you've challenged us to rightly divide the Word of God, to handle it right, to apply it to our lives, to first run it through our own hearts before we ever share it with someone else. So Lord, I pray that you would cause this church to be a discipling church, growing in our love for you, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Lord, I pray you would encourage us, spur us on, Lord. Don't let us plateau. Don't let us fade, Lord. Let us finish this race and finish it well, Lord. Time is short. The age is growing long. And soon we will see the return of the King. And so, Lord, help us in this life. Father, I do remember those who can't be with us, those who have gone through treatments and surgeries this week. There's several, Lord. Some are recovering. Some are are not doing well. Some are doing better, Lord. But thank you for your care and your watch over them, Lord. Help us to be mindful of the sick and those who are struggling. Thank you for our missionaries around the world. Give them favor, strengthen them. Lord, may we run here, Lord. All the freedoms we enjoy, Lord, may we use those for your glory and for our spiritual growth. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week I began a series that's really kind of turned into because I can't get all through it in one week, but began to work my way through 1 Corinthians 10. It's quite a powerful passage of Scripture. One of the things I began to think about this week is this Scripture can be confused with with some people thinking that they can lose their salvation. And I think I made that perfectly clear. I hope I made it clear last week. We can't lose what God has done, right? But is if your hope is in your own, what you have done, your good works, your good choices, all those things... This passage reminds you that if your hope is in you, you may not be in the faith. But it's also to challenge Christians who claim themselves to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, much like those in the Old Testament who said they were followers of God and followed Moses into the wilderness, and yet they were laid low. It's a great reminder that people abuse the grace of God. If you've never really tasted the grace of God, meaning life-transforming, life uh, uh, the, the work of the grace of God that takes dead people and makes them alive, gives us hearts, takes out hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh. Lord, if you haven't done that, if you've not had that great miraculous event happen to you, your heart remains hard and God's grace will often be abused. Well, that's the scene we have in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. We have a church that's abusing Christian liberties, and Paul's after them. They've they've taken what God has given to them, and they've abused it. They've used it for their own sordid gain. They have not loved Christ more and loved others. And Paul is admonishing them how they handle this God-given faith. They have... 
preyed on the weaker brother because they're so self-confident in who they are and what they have done. They've allowed their weaker brother to suffer because they really don't care about him. They only care about themselves. Paul, in the closing statements of chapter 9, reminds them that he himself does everything for the sake of the gospel. He runs a race. He fights the fight. He does all of that because in the end, he himself wants to be assured that God has transformed his life lest he be disqualified. See, we don't teach do this in order to get that. (laughs) We teach that Christ transformed us and causes us in a love for his grace and glory to walk and run for him. And Paul says, I don't want to run a race in a different way. There's, there's a set of rules. There's a set of guidelines that the Bible has given us. I want to run that way. I want to complete the race the way God has designed. Otherwise, I myself might be disqualified. I was in a conversation this week with some young people. They were struggling with their friends who look at the Bible and want to change it. They, 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 they want to say, well, well, we don't think God's that way. And they said, well, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and, and took away? Well, yeah, we believe that, but we believe he'll accept us any way we want to live. Ooh. So you're redefining what the Bible says. So I was encouraging them, helping them to carefully walk these people through to understand that God has a way for us to live. And one of the great results of our salvation is there's a changed life. In fact, let me say it this way. There's new life. <laughs> we were dead in our sins. You're now alive in Jesus Christ. And so there is, a, there is a desire to walk his way, not our way. And when we walk our way, we as Christians come under great conviction of that. But if you never come under conviction... If you never desire to do things God's way, you may end up like many of these in our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that Paul does not want them to be unaware. He wants them to understand what God was doing and what God is now doing. In verse 1, he says, Look, our fathers, who are all under the same cloud, have passed under the sea, through the sea. All, in, all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all have the spiritual food and all drink of the spiritual drink. They all thought that they were God's children, but he proved they weren't. Paul told the Roman church that not all Israel is the children of God. In fact, they were so consumed with God meeting their physical need, give me, give me, give me, they had no desire or understanding what their souls needed. I think the way maybe we would translate that today is many people walk aisles, say prayers, raise hands, beg God in times of great despair, and yet when that is answered, when their relief comes, they turn and do just whatever they did before. See, one of the marks of a Christian is we're worshipers. We're worshipers. We are consumed with Jesus Christ. He captures our thoughts he captures our desires. He affects our marriages and childbearing and raising. He affects everything. He affects all those things because he's all to us. And though we struggle at times, we're quick to see those struggles, repent of those, and turn to our Lord Jesus Christ and walk again. But not the case in this text. 
And Paul's reminding of that. See, they were after physical, and yet God was going to provide their much greater need, their spiritual need. He was going to save their souls if they would put their faith alone in him. And even through the rock and the water that he provided for them, the bread that he provided for them, was all pointing towards the solution to their spiritual needs that was the coming Messiah. But they rejected him. They rejected him. And so that brings us to our first thought today. It was our second thought last week that there's a deadly reality of life without saving faith. Look at verse 5 as we pick up where we left off. After this great provision of grace that God had given the nation, after he fed them and quenched their thirst, drowned their enemies, protected them over and over and provided for them, all leading to them to put their faith in him, The Bible says in verse 5, nevertheless, even though all that was true, all was pointing towards a greater reality, a living water that was coming to rescue their eternal souls. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. They were laid low. And he gives those four examples of grace that was abused by these people. We looked at that. We looked at the Old Testament passages to realize they rejected the grace of God because they were so man-centered versus Christ-centered or God-centered. And that could be our problem. See, faith is the game-changer, isn't it? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not, it's not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest you may boast before Him. So that's what the Bible teaches Both grace and faith are a gift from God, and that results in us desiring these good works He has planned in advance for us, for us to accomplish it. That's what grace does. That's what faith does. It's given to us of both are gift, aren't they? And it causes us to run after that faith, to run after that grace, to pursue those things. And when we fail, and we will fail, because we're not yet perfect here on this earth, though our position in Christ is perfect, we will fail and we repent of that. That's the mark of a believer. In fact, Hebrews 11 said, without faith, it's impossible to please him. But the Bible says, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So that means there's people who came after God faithlessly. If the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God, then this tells us that there is a great number of people in the Old Testament and probably in the New, because he's writing to the Corinth church who claims they have faith in Jesus Christ to say they were faithless in their approach of God. That means often we approach faith through our own works and our own effort. And when we do that, we certainly risk the possibility of being laid low in the wilderness at the end of verse 5. That means they were scattered. Now, look at verse 6 with me. We touched on this briefly. He said, now these things happened as an example for us. Such an important little prepositional phrase there, right? Now these things happen as an example for us. It's so easy to look at and go, boy, those guys, what boneheads. God was so good to them. No. They're already dead. They're already souls waiting the judgment of 
of eternal death waiting for them, the Bible now says, this is for us. This happened for our examples, for us. So that, and I love so that, say, tell me there's a resulting clause, we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Cravings, they're difficult to fight. If you're on a diet, cravings seem stronger than they ever have seemed, right? That chocolate case in the, uh, cake in the case just calls your name, doesn't it? Those carbs, those sugars you're trying to stay off, now all of you are starting to get hungry. Man, you begin to crave that stuff. And from a human standpoint of view, that's not great for you, is it? <laughs> We're trying our best, by God's help, to take care of these temples, these earthly temples. We understand cravings, don't we? But these cravings here in this verse, verse 6, have a deadly outcome to them. They're, they show the difference between one who has the Spirit of God and one who does not. It doesn't mean that Christians are not tempted and tested and tried. We'll look at that uh, in, in, as we get down through these verses. But it, remain, it means that we have the Spirit of God in us to help us through the Word of God in the glorious person of, the God, of Jesus Christ and His gospel to say, no, God. I don't want to go down that craving. I want to live for you. I want to follow you. And we spoke of this last week, and we saw that it is possible to quench the Spirit as Christians, right? The word quench, uh, the Greek word has this idea of to sequester. And here's what Christians can do at times. Sunday church was good. I felt a little bit convicted. But then we went to Cracker Barrel. And everything got better. And I ran the Spirit of God into his closet and I left him there till next Sunday. Don't get out of there because I have a business to run and I certainly don't want you interfering the way I run business. I have struggles in my marriage and I don't need your conviction in that because I feel I'm right in my views. See, that's what happens. And then that, that leads us to that craving of how to deal with our difficulties the way the world does. And so there's quarreling and warring and problems. But see, when God saved you, brothers and sisters, he said, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you, and I'm going to place my own spirit within you. And not only is he always going to be this illuminating light within you to, to remind you of the glorious Jesus Christ and his gospel, but he's also going to bring you to conviction. And yet so often he's sequestered in the Christian life. And so we ask the question, is he free? Or is he even in there? Because he's not there, you're not saved. That means you're alone in this world. That means you're unidentified in Christ. That means if that doesn't change, if God does not save you, you'll be laid low in the wilderness. That's eternal death. And so, as we look at verse 6, we begin to realize these things were given as an example for us. Oh God, my heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. We just said, we just read that. The writer of that great hymn, Robert Robertson, fell away and lived in sinful habits for a while. He heard that song sung that he wrote from some young lady, and God used that to bring him back to a right walk with the Lord. Prone to wander 
prone to leave the God I love. I, I have never saw, thought, saw, uh, sung that song and not thought that's not true. Because I know it's true. There is within us our battle between the spirit and the flesh, isn't there? And if that flesh wins, we get laid in the wilderness. And that's Paul's thought here. He wants them to know, look, you're not acting like Christians. You abuse the grace of God. You don't care about the weak. You do whatever you want. And then you say, oh, I'm going to heaven. (laughs) That means the salvation of Jesus Christ was powerless to change your life. The wilderness is coming. See, he's warning, isn't he? He's warning. Now, look, I want to say something before I get into these four areas that he's going to deal with. God identifies you as, your chi- as his child. And you should know whether you're saved or not. You should be convicted over sin in your life. That's a mark of a Christian. We're convicted over sin because the Spirit lives there and it's his house. It's his temple. He's holy and without sin. And we should feel that, shouldn't we? And we should respond to that. See, that's a mark of a Christian. I want to be clear. A Christian can't lose his salvation because it's something God does. And God makes no mistakes. And God seals and, 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 and establishes and affirms. And, and he, he holds us even despite our temporary wanderings. But brothers and sisters, I want you to understand the true Christian follows Christ. The word Christ is in our title. Christians. We follow Christ. And when we deviate, when we get off that path because of our cravings at times, our our, our own evil flesh at times, when we let that have its way, we quickly see that and we say, oh God, that's not of you. Your son died for that. You nailed him across. You, you made him die and be judged for my sins. Oh, forgive me. And you get back on that path. That's the mark of a Christian. Sometimes that happens like that and sometimes others wander for quite some time. But the true Christian falls back in line behind his Savior or her Savior. Others wander away and cling to their morals because they were raised in a Christian home or whatever it may be. In the end, that can't save them. Well, what Paul does next here is quite astonishing. He delivers four areas that the nation of Israel found themselves disqualified to prove, to prove that they were only after physical provision. They had no desire for the spiritual provision God was trying to give them. But I want to highlight these areas today. We'll see how far we get. We may, we may break this one into another one as well. But these same areas were true in the Corinth church. And I promise you, if you're willing to look at this, they're true in our life at times. And so Paul begins to break out four disqualifying areas in a person's life. If these things have you captured, if Christ has not freed you, and these things have you captured, these will lay low in the wilderness. Well, A is disqualified by idolatry. Look at verse 7 with me. After he tells them and warns them of these examples are for us, and that these 
You, don't, you should not crave after these evil, evil things just as they did. He says this. He makes this great statement. It's imperative. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Well, we know where this text comes from. Remember last week we'll be running around in our Bibles here a little bit. So look at Exodus chapter 32 because we want to show what Paul is referring to. We know the exact passages in many of these, what he's referring to. Paul knew his Old Testament. That's all they had at the time. They preached Jesus Christ through the Old Testament while they were being inspired by the Spirit of God, God to write the new one. This is chapter 32. Chapter 32 of Exodus 1 through 6, follow along as I read. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a small g God who will go before us, for as for this Moses, I love the way they refer to this man, this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, wrong, God brought you up. You can see how far their thinking is from a faith in God, right? Already, just in these statements. We do not know what has become of him. Look, many idols, they come from our hearts because we didn't do things, God didn't do things our way and in our timing. That's where many of our idols come from. See, they don't know what's happened to Moses. We need somebody, because Moses doesn't look like he's coming back. God's on a different plan than we are, so give us a new God. Unfortunately, Aaron says to them, tear off your gold earrings, verse 2, which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Verse 3, then all the people tore off their gold earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Verse 4, he took them from their hands and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, they said, this is your God. O Israel, look at this lie, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord? <laughs> I have a question mark in my Bible written there. And a what? <laughs> this is how far your thinking goes when, you're, when, you, when you have idols of your heart, when you desire things greater than, than the true and living God, this is where it will take you. And, and look, don't, don't think you're above this. Look at verse 7. Excuse me, verse 6. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings. Just like the pagans, God was going to give them a, a sacrificial system to lead them towards the coming of Christ. But they just revert, right? Just like the pagans, just what they saw in Egypt, just what they saw in the nations around them. They offered burnt offerings. They brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Complete abandonment of their God. No faith. So they fashion this golden object into this Egyptian God. And Israel plans to, as you see this, they plan to worship Yahweh through a graven image. 
And somehow they thought that they could have this pagan idol and worship the true God. But that's what's happening in Corinth. As you look at our text back in 1 Corinthians 10 here, the same things happen. This town is consumed with idolatry. The center of the town is the temple of, of Aphrodite. She's, she is this ruling goddess in this town. The temple controls the moral direction of the city. Sound familiar? It's on every corner. It's flooded in every street. It's on every channel. <laughs> it's in every advertisement. In fact, we know they had over a thousand prostitutes who nightly went out and twisted this pagan, immoral worship together. And here's the Corinth church mingling in this. See, the Christians in Corinth thought they could, thought they were so free that they could go out on Saturday night, participate in this idolistic behavior, show up on Sunday morning, sing songs, listen to the word preached, and there was no problem. All because they thought they were free in Jesus. See, they're redefining terms. Because that's what they do today. Love is love. Trying to redefine the term. No, God is love. That's what the Bible says. So God defines love. And so there's always this redefining. When you want to worship something, you have to redefine it so you can, you can feel you can feel right about what you're doing. So Paul is reminding them that their forefathers, those people that went before them, the nation of Israel, they did this, and their idolatry led them to be dead in the wilderness. Now, isn't it interesting? The first command when Moses comes off the mountain is what? You shall have another gods before you. <laughs> A little golden bull calf over. What's the first command again? Can I ask you a question this morning? Will you be honest? Is there any gods in your life that are before the true and living God right now? And you say, well, Scott, I don't have any golden calves or little Buddhas or anything in my house. That's what I'm talking about. How about self-opinion versus God's word? Ooh, ow, Scott, that's a little close. When a decision needs to be made, when a comment needs to come out of your mouth, is any of that run through the grid of what God's word says? Or does our opinion need to be bowed down to? Your spouse may say something different. Your children may even say something different. Is there justification of behavior? This is, we, we fall into this, don't we? We act pagan, we act godless, even as Christians at times, and yet then we try to justify why we did it. We call this blame shifting, don't we? How about a life motivated by fear? We deal with this all the time. It's one of the heavy counseling issues. Someone who comes in is just, their, their life is just gripped with fear. The God of fear has them completely. They're afraid of everything. They're afraid to commit to follow Christ in many areas. And that, that there becomes an idol. It'll lay you low in the wilderness. And so the question is, what is it that we rise up to worship other than God? I mean, it's a, it's a command, it's imperative. Do not be an idolater, as some of them were. 
Verse 14, if you just drop down, he comes back and goes, Therefore, my beloved, those who claim to be Christians flee idolatry. There's time to run from this. And just because we're not surrounded by graven images, don't think this doesn't apply to us, right? It's written to Christians who have their hearts targeted by Satan in this world, right? And idolatry is something easily we slip into. And, and the thing about idolatry today is it's often hidden from the human eye, but God sees it. That's what's so difficult, isn't it? And if you're honest with yourself, if you study God's word at all, he'll expose that. And you go, Lord, I really do love that more than you at times, don't I? Will you forgive me? The next disqualifying sin was the sin of immorality. Look at verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now, this second disqualifying act that shows they really truly did not have saving faith in God is alluded to in verse 7. Notice the word play. They rose up to play. But the results are in verse 8. They acted immorally. They acted. They physically, active, took an involvement in immorality, which always starts in the mind long before it comes out physically. It starts in the deep resources of who we are, and God sees all of that. I want to prove to you that immorality is the product of idolatry. Look with me at Romans 1. Let me say that again as you're turning there. Immorality is a byproduct of idolatry. See, you just can't say, well, Scott, can I just have my little TV show that I really watch way more than I read the Bible? <laughs> can I have my, my little things over here? The problem is, idolatry doesn't like to worship alone. It wants to bring other things with it. Look at Romans 1 with me, verse 27, excuse me, verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. He's talking about the damned, right? Those who will fall under the judgment of God, those who have rejected God, though they saw him, though he, they, they see who he is, his, his works are evident, they reject him, they become fools. And notice what happens, they exchange the glory of an incorruptible God for the image of for, the, an image, for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So the nation of Israel at the foot of Sinai, they, they substituted for a God that cannot, he's spirit, God is spirit. They, they formed what they thought in their own weak, sinful minds, an image to represent their God. And the world does this, Right? They love to worship the planet. They love to worship what God created rather than God. Now look at verse 24. There's a therefore, and this is extremely important. Because I want to show you, if you and I don't deal with idolatry in our life, it doesn't like to party alone. It's bringing immorality with it. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts... You go, well, wasn't that stuff outside? All the bad, I'll just stay away from that. I'll just, but less is in your heart, right? So, so God gives them over. He doesn't restrain them from that. He gives them over to the lust of their own hearts to impurity so that 
their bodies would be dishonored among them. So Aphrodite was not going to stay in the temple. Aphrodite was heading to the town. It was headed to every corner. It was headed to every place. That's the goal. Idolatry wants to dance with someone else. And it turns into immorality. Notice they exchange the truth, verse 25, of God for a lie. People do that every day. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And then he can't even say the word creator without Paul going, who is blessed forever, amen. <laughs> Don't you love that? We've got to talk about hard things here, but as soon as we manage an, an attribute of God, you just praise him, right? That's our apostle Paul in a very difficult passage. Verse 26. Idolatry leads to immorality. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Now this is such an important thing. God created man, male and female. He loves gender. (laughs) He made gender to show his glory. Man alone, male alone cannot fully display the image of God. So he made us male and he made us female. And he made us in such a way so we would glorify him in those unique roles that he gives us. It's a beautiful thing. And Satan hates it and so does the world. And they are on full on, full court press on this right now. And you say, well, yeah, times are getting worse. No, they didn't know it was day two. And we see the homosexual movement all through the Bible. It's one of Satan's great runs at God to deny his family unit, to deny who he is. See, idolatry leads to immorality. In the same way, verse 27, also men abandoned the natural functions for a woman and burned in their desires towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts, and then look at this phrase, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. I have, I, I remember I ministered in the West for so long, and the environmental movement out there is its own religion. And rarely did I ever engage with an environmentalist who didn't support the murder of the unborn, who didn't support um, homosexual, uh, homosexuality, that all comes together. You worship God's creation versus him, it'll lead you right to a dance parter of immorality. And Romans 1 proves it. Now, turn back to chapter 10 with me. You go, well, where is this happening? Verse 8 says, nor let, nor let us act immorally, now look at this, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Remember last week I told you I was at the, the Civil War of Chickamauga? They're right on the Tennessee and Georgia line. I stood there and just was overwhelmed to think that 10,000 souls lay dead in these fields right here. You know, 150 years ago. That's how bad we'd gotten, right? This is 23,000 people in one day. Well, look with me here at Numbers 25 because we got to see this. This is what's happening. This is coming right out of the Word of God. Paul's preaching the Old Testament to show them they need Christ and they need to walk with Christ. Numbers chapter 25. Verse 
In the fall, I'm going to start the book of Numbers. I've been through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Now I'm working my way through the Pentateuch. So I can't wait to start this. And we'll get more details as we go along. But here you can just get a brief understanding of what's happening here in this sin of immorality. While Israel, verse 1, was at Shittim, Shittim um, the people began to play the harlot. That's strong language. Parents, you're going to have to do some explanation here. I'll let you do that. This is, this is not good. This, the Bible actually is often written in, in a fairly G-rated way, but the terms that are used help us understand the depth of immorality here. And they did this with the daughters of Moab. Now, for they invited the people to sacrifice of their God, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. This is full-on adulterous worship against God and now mixing in the immoralities of the nations, right? Here's some real important words. Verse 3. So Israel, now here's this word, joined. This word is used in intimacy and relationships between a man and a woman and so forth. Joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Look, every once in a while we see the truth of, of Romans 6.23 come full, um, into full display. For the wages of sin is death. And this is one of those verses where God says, well, let me show you where sin leads. I'm going to give you a full-on example and 23,000 people are going to die. This is where sin takes. It kills and destroys. That's what it does. Verse 5, so Moses said to the judges, each of you slay his men who have, here's their word again, joined themselves. This is, this is deeper than what you, just a, an English word. They're full on participating in the immorality of the world's religious character. Verse 6, and then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought his relatives a Midian wife. This is all in a narrative. This is a sick thing in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. Full-on immorality with someone outside of, of the covenant people. They brought him right in the sight of all the leaders. And while they're weeping in the doorway of what's going on, this gets done right in front of them. This, it's full out. We don't care. We're going to put it in your face. When Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up in the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And moms and dads, you can see this, what happens here. And when he went after the men, man of Israel into the tent, he pierced both of them through. Gives you a little insight here. And the man of Israel and the woman through the body, so the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died were 24,000. Now, here we begin to realize that flirting... Flirting with immorality leads to death. <laughs> immorality is not something to be flirted with. You, you, you cannot play around with it even in our minds. And the reason is, is first because the Bible says not to. It's not good enough. Let's stop right there. The Bible says not to. And yet our flesh can crave these things. But secondly, because it impacts everybody around you. 23,000 people die, 24,000 people die in the wilderness that day. This is the text we believe he's referring to. They die in the wilderness that day because of immorality. It leads to death and it affects so many people. What do you think, what do you think tents were like that night? 
Can you imagine the loss of 24,000 people in a city like Ormond all of a sudden? Great mourning, great loss. It impacts everything. And look, for us, it impacts those who will listen to us. You want to get involved in immorality and yet still have your family? Not going to work. I've had dads tell me, well, I just don't know why they're so bothered by this. Your father, you cheated on their mother. You don't think that'll bother them? See, that's where sin just darkens your view of the heinousness of sin before God. And what happens is people are strewn in the wilderness. But let's go even a little farther. Think about this is an absolute rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I died for you, now live for me. You don't have to live for me to get me. I've already given you me. I've given you fully me. I died for your sins, your past, present, and future sins. You have me. Now, if that's enough, if the gospel's really in your heart, now live for me. Oh, Scott, can't we just have this and this? Can't we all just get along? <laughs> you already told them in chapter 6, verse 18, flee immorality. I want to show you a passage, and it's going to kill my time, but go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. I think there's so much discipleship here as Christians of how we live our life. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I, had, I, I preached this verse, but for some reason it just came afresh to me this week as I looked at it. Paul's challenging this young protege, the one who's about ready to take the mantle from him. Paul knows that this is it. He says later in chapter 4 that he's completely poured out. This is it. I've run the race. All past tense. I've run the race, fought the fight, kept the faith. I'm done. It's over. <laughs> so he's pouring everything out in this protege of his. He's about ready to pass the torch. And he's reminding them that they're vessels of God. They're to be set before the master. They're, they're, they're given in verse 21. They're prepared for good works. And he tells Timothy, look, he says, look in verse 22. I love this verse. It's just, it's hit me hard this week. Now flee from youthful lust. Immorality needs to be fleed from, not flirted with. Somebody said that recently. I heard that somewhere. Immorality needs to be fleed from, not flirted with. And that's what Paul's telling him. Flee from this immorality. But then he says this, and this is what intrigues me. And pursue righteousness. That's doing things right according to God's way, not according to how you want to twist the scriptures. Do it his way. Pursue faith, trust, hanging on to God. Pursue love the way God designs love, that you'll lay down sacrificially your life for others because Christ laid down his life for you. Peace that passes all understanding. Choose that type of peace. Now, Look at this little preposition phrase right here at the beginning of this, because I'm going to push you on discipleship and taking classes. With those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Look at that little preposition phrase. With those. One of the things I run into often is when I find men who are struggling with pornography or struggling with other things in their life that are destroying their marriage or whatever it may be, I begin to ask them who they're hanging with. Who are you accountable with? A man just shared this week that he was trying to help a young man. And he said, can I be accountable to you? Will you let me in and let me see what you're doing and help you and meet with you regularly? And he said, no. I don't want that. See, look, the Bible says, 
that we are to, with, to be with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, I think some people think we're just, we, we just want to be the super smart church. We have all these layers of discipleship. In essence, what the elders have done is said, oh God, where are people at? Where can we, where can we develop discipleship in each area where people are at in their, in their pursuit of Christ-likeness? Help us understand where they're at so we can get them engaged and, and have accountability and learn to, learn to weep and to rejoice with others. So many men fall into sin, and men, I'm going to speak right at you because you will not engage with other men, godly men. And many of your wives beg us to get you into something. But you stand aloof. And you don't want to take a class. You don't want to get into soul care. You don't want to go to DTP because you, you feel you're going to be exposed. That's what God wants. And he wants it done with those who have a pure heart. They want people that love you and care for you who want to help you grow. And I need you. We who are maybe leaders, we need you as well. Iron sharpens iron. I studied this verse. I probably spent too much time thinking about this verse this week in my studies. I thought, with those, with those. Ladies, you thought you got off here, didn't you? (laughs) Ladies will love to get together, won't they? Ladies are more, in most cases, are a little more relational than us men. And that's great. We love it. It reflects the glory of God, doesn't it? But is your getting together really with those of a pure heart who want to know Jesus more? Too many studies turn into gossip hours when there were supposed to be prayer, prayer requests. See, he's really serious about this. You want to beat the disqualifying work of immorality or idolatry in your life? Pull next to others. See, this is, this is discipleship 101. I can't do this life alone in this human world that I live in. God has given us, brothers and sisters, to do life with. He knows the difficulties. And yet so many Christians just kind of run that lane by themselves. They'll show up to church here maybe two times a month. Boy, I really feel like I'm really hitting the mark. And never sit down and break the word of God together. Oh, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be laid in the wilderness. And so elders work hard to put together this this way of discipling that no matter where you're at, if you're a baby Christian, if maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you're still not familiar with the Word of God, soul care is a great way to do that. Maybe you've run a little while and you've kind of plateaued. You ask, God, I need something. DTP is designed for men and women who know God's word but need to be recharged and realize, oh, we have this great God who's changing me in the image of Christ. I want him to affect every area. We have classes and colleges and seminaries to really increase your faith and strength so that you love Jesus more. And, And see, when you look at the nation of Israel, that's exactly the problem. They wanted the physical, but not the spiritual. A man told me one time, he says, God, I go to church, and God will bless my business. I'll just be straight up about it. You may die a rich man, I told him. Your barns may be full, and your soul will be required of you, and then who will get your wealth? See, that easily happens, and that's what happened to the nation of Israel. And the result was this 
impure life. They were so easily attracted by the shiny things of the world. And, and, and moms and dads, I, 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 I press you again. The world wants your college student. Don't let them have them. There's a third disqualifying aspect we find in verse 9. Turn back to the text. No. My arch enemy is back there ticking away. <laughs> verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did. Isn't that phrase? As some of them did. As some of them did. As some of them did. You see it repeated in here. And notice this, they tried the Lord and they were destroyed by serpents. Now look, if the Lord doesn't return, I know I'm going to die, but I don't want to die by snakes. <laughs> I've been cowboyed all over this world for a long, long time. I still don't like snakes. My wife will tell you I'll have snake dreams and I'll kick her in the middle of the night. If this happens, and turn your way, make your way to Romans 21, I am on my knees first repenting. <laughs> oh, God, I am so sorry. Please don't let that snake bite me. <laughs> Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. But when your heart is hard, brother or sister or friend in this room who doesn't know Jesus, when your heart is hard, I promise you, you you're going to be bit by a snake because you're not going to turn to Jesus. Because you can't. Your heart's hard. It doesn't love God. We have to see this quickly. What are the time we get out? About two? <laughs> Numbers 21, verse 4. I know it's here somewhere. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. That was a problem. And the people became impatient because of the journey and the People spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Well, let's just take a little bit of count. I not only brought you out, I made you rich when you came out because they gave you all their gold and silver. I drowned your enemies. I split seas. I fed you from, I, I gave you thirst. I, I took care of your thirst from a rock. I fall bread out of heaven every day. But notice them. There is no food. That's a lie. He was providing for them. They had animals to sacrifice to God. He, they had everything they needed. It wasn't what they wanted. There is no food. There is no water. That's a lie. And look at this. We loathe this miserable food. This is a rejection of the God of heaven. You want to know why they... If you're here and you're still going, oh, this just isn't even fair, you know. These people lay low in the wilderness. Right here. Complete rejection of the God of heaven. And guess what they do to Jesus in John chapter 6, who is the bread of life? Complete rejection. Same thing. Look at verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. You don't think God has power? First of all, he could have created these serpents just like that because he's a creator, right? And he sent them. Maybe that happened. Or he had a great offspring the year before of a bunch of little vipers that are running around the desert. But whatever he did, they're completely under the control of the creator, and he sends them in to bite them. 
And so many of the people of Israel died, the Bible says. Verse 7, so the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Yeah, because we have spoken against the Lord and you, our intercessor, right? Please intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded from the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, make, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard or on a pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit a man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, serpent he lived. What an amazing grace. Complete rejection of God. And we get into numbers. I'm going I'm to pull this apart a little more, and I can't wait to take you to tie you together with Numbers chapter 1 and, numbers tw- uh, and John 12, where Jesus... Jesus now is the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. And you go, well, how, do, how, does, how does Jesus now become this serpent? A lot of people struggle with that. Because the Bible says that God made him to be sin for us. And you looked upon him. And when you looked upon him, he caused you to live. And that's salvation. And that should have been a lesson to them. But instead... They follow God to please themselves, not to glorify him. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They felt their freedom would give them the ability to please themselves. They were not interested in what God wanted. At least they wanted to at least reinterpret what God wanted. And so they lived whatever way. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Antinomianism. Oh, we're under grace. Hey, we're reformed theology here. You know, can't lose our salvation, so we'll live any way we want. You're on your way to hell. I'll just be very plain. <laughs> that is not what the Bible teaches. Paul says in, in Romans 6, 2, may it never be, it's a, it's a Greek phrase used that that's impossible to be saved and experience the grace of God and blow off God and live any way you want. That means God did not change your heart. He doesn't have the power to change your mind, your soul, and every direction in you. That's what the Corinthians were doing. And Christians do this. They abuse, they abuse God in this age of grace. And they find themselves in a very false security. I've got to hurry here. And we'll close in prayer after this. Hayward, I, I'm so sorry. I've got to at least get through these four. Disqualified by a complaining spirit. Verse 10. This one. Ooh nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Well, you may have escaped idolatry, immorality, and maybe testing God. I don't think you did, but you may think you have. But you ain't getting out of this one. Because our hearts are prone to wander, and when that comes, we grumble, don't we? Are you 100% satisfied with everything that's going on in your life? You have the best health, the best marriage, the best kids. If you do, you would need to talk to me because you're probably lying to yourself. Everything's perfect. We all suffer under this fallen world, don't we? And one of the results is this great grumbling, this complaining. The text he's referring to, we don't have time, number 16, write it down, 32 and following. Korah and his followers, his family, rise up and complain against the type 
who is Moses. He's a type. He's a future. He's a look at, at the coming Christ. He's, he's, he's not Christ, but he represents a coming Christ. They start to complain against him that they don't want him as their leader. And the ground swallows up their entire family. Now, I don't know how you want to die, <laughs> but that one's not going to be fun either. I lived in California. I'll take the hurricanes any day over earthquakes. God sends this shaking of the ground. He opens it up. This whole family falls to their death, is closed up over them. And if you think that's bad, in Numbers chapter 16, verse 41, the Bible says, and the next day the people rose up to complain against Moses and God. What? You just saw these people, lock, stock, and barrel, swallowed. We don't like what you're doing, God. And we don't like your guy. And the Bible says a plague came, verse 49, and 14,700 people died that day. Until Moses could come and intercede for them and pray for them and ask God to stop the plague. It happened that fast, almost 15,000 people like that because of grumbling. I know parents are going, wait till I get home, talk to the kids about this one. <laughs> That's grumbling in itself. Look at this word destroyer at the end of the verse. That word just kind of scares me a little bit. It's a powerful word. It's used in Exodus chapter 12 where the destroyer comes in and wipes out the firstborn of all Egyptians and all of their livestock in a swoop. We don't know what that count is. We, we have no idea. It devastated the nation of Egypt. Chapter, uh, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 24, David's disobedience. He wanted to count the people and God told him not to. A pestilence is sent by the destroyer and 70,000 are killed. 2 Chronicles 32, a destroyer is sent to go against the Assyrians. He kills 180,000 people in one night, this destroyer. God deals with sin, and you can't get around it. And look, when we complain, we display our rejection of God's sovereign plan in our lives. And it's such a hard thing, isn't it? I complained this week, and then I studied this text. <laughs> oh, God, help me not complain. I'm rejecting your plan for my life. Paul, he doesn't want these Corinthians to take sin lightly, so he's showing them some extremes, right? Most of the time, the ground's not going to open up and swallow us. Most of the time, we're not going to be snake bit. Most of the time, that's not going to happen. The destroyer's not going to come. Most of the time, we're just going to live with our consequences and be mad at God because he wasn't fair to us. And that's sad. Because we've for a moment, think about this, grumbling comes from a moment when I take my eyes off the glorious grace bestowed on me through the finished work of Jesus Christ and I focus on something so less serious. And one last statement before I pray. Discontent, I wrote this in my note, discontentment is a gateway sin. Hmm. Think about that. You've heard about gateway drugs? This sin's a gateway. And the effects of complaining will etch away at your marriage. 
will cause your children to look somewhere other than Jesus. So many things discontentment brings into our lives. Paul said, I've learned to live with little and much. I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Next week, we'll get into how we get that contentment. He's going to give us some verses to remind us there's a way out. There's a way out. Please don't miss next week. If you can't be here, watch. I, I really want you to hear this as the Word teaches us. Hey, Word, I'm sorry. Can I pray now? Father, thank you for this time and your Word together. We've gone a little late today, but Lord, it's so worth it to be in the Word. Lord, it's a blessing just to study your word and to see and learn from the past, Lord. Lord, I think this is just an act of your grace, just as we study this, that we don't have to go through this. Somebody else went through it and we can be showed to us and we can, by the work of the Spirit, realize that this is the result of sin. It kills, it, it ruins, it destroys, it, it separates. That's the goal of sin. And yeah, we've had a Jesus, the very Son of God, equal in every way hang on the cross for our sins and be judged like he committed our sins because the wages of sin is death and he died for us. But sin and Satan and death could not hold him. He resurrected, beat all of that so we can be free in Christ to live lives that glorify him, not so much ourselves. And that's where we struggle. So Lord, I ask that you would help us today be those who learn from the sin of others, in a sense. We don't want to be left in the wilderness. We don't want our families devastated. We want lives that honor you, Lord. For some of the young people, Lord, they're starting new generations here. And I pray, Lord, that you would use them to have generation after generation that trust God. Not, we're not perfect, Lord. We're perfectly saved, but they would trust you. Maybe for some of us, we have some heavy mistakes in our life. Lord, I, I pray this for some of us in this room. But God, you are so gracious. Your faithfulness leads us through the difficult times. It even leads us through the consequences that we struggle in. You're good to us, Lord. Help us to repent of sins that are that are what we know of, that are there, they're nagging at us, they're, they're causing cravings in our lives, Lord. Help us to repent and turn from those sins, Lord. And give us strength to live for you, not ourselves. Lord, as I close this prayer, there's doubtlessly people in this room who don't know you. You can't gather this many people in one place, Lord, or those online who everyone is saved. Most likely, Lord, there's someone here that doesn't know you. And God, I pray that they would not see that we are teaching works to become a Christian. We are teaching the finished work of Jesus Christ that causes us to live for you. Lord, I pray you put a need within their heart that they would desire the things of God. They would desire to have their sins forgiven. They would desire to have a right relationship with God. God, I know you can do that. Plunge that in their heart. We pray you'd save them, Lord. For the rest of us, may we live lives that bring you glory, Lord. Help us to be quick to repent when we've been sinful, when we've been acting like idolaters at times. Help us repent of that quickly, Lord. 
Help us when we grumble and complain, Lord. Help us to see that we're going against your sovereign plan. Help us love those you've put into our lives. Love when it's difficult. Help us reflect Jesus is what we're asking. We need to come to you every day. We sang a song earlier, Lord, every hour we need you. That's so true. And the moment we try to rely on our own strength for that hour, Lord, we seem to go astray. So help us every hour to need you, to want you in our lives. Lord, thank you for this set of sermons, this text, Lord. It's, it's helping us grow, Lord. It's helping us be more like your son. May you be glorified by all that we've said and sung and done here today. Be glorified by our thought life. Be glorified by our lives as we leave this building. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.